Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. I'm Nate Wagner, one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington, and we are continuing to plow through Revelation. We're coming to the end, and it's the good stuff. So hope you guys are ready for that. I've got to tell you a little something about me to get going, and that is, as a little boy, I was obsessed with baseball. I loved baseball in a very unhealthy way. It animated everything that I did. Every single thought that I had day and night was all geared towards how can I get better at baseball and when can I play again? I didn't even like watching it. I would go to like a major league game with my dad and I would make it through like two innings and then I was like, dad, we gotta go play. We gotta go now. I wanted to play so bad. And I grew up kind of in the city and the field that we had was this gravel field, like a gravel baseball field. It's, you know, I don't even know if they, this is legal anymore, but because you're like sliding and diving, get gravel embedded in your skin. And in Colorado, we had these things called goat heads. Do you guys know what goat heads are? Anybody? No? Okay. Yeah. They're just so, so, such a part of my life. Um, there's these little nasty thorns that fall off of bushes and just kind of get scattered on the ground. And so one of my experiences um, repeatedly playing baseball as a young child was I was a catcher at first, and so the ball would kind of get thrown behind me, and I would run and go get it, and it was covered in thorns. And what are you going to do? The guy's coming home. You have to pick up the ball and kind of do your best to throw it, and then your hand is covered in thorns. And I just knew that there's a better way to play baseball. And I hated the fact that there was thorns on the field. And so fast forward kind of through my childhood into high school, I actually had the chance, my team had the chance to play at the major league stadium in Colorado, Coors Field. And so it was like this cool little outreach promotion that the team did to the local high schools. And so we got to, my team got to drive on the bus through like the player's entrance, got to go into the clubhouse. And I remember, I still remember very vividly walking through kind of like the player's entrance into the dugout and the stadium opening up. Well, there weren't any goat heads on this field. It was perfectly manicured. Every blade of grass was in order. The chalk line was perfectly straight. The dirt and clay mixture was perfect. And I got to play. Um, I, I was a pitcher at this point, and I got to come and pitch the last two innings of, of the game that I played there, and then came back the next year and pitched the first two innings um, of the game. And it was just, I had so much adrenaline going that I, I like, I was my pitches were all way high because I was just so pumped up, I was so amped. I had trouble kind of calming myself down because this moment was kind of the fulfillment of all of my hopes as a kid. Like I wanted to play Major League Baseball and here I am, I'm not in the Major Leagues, granted, but I'm on that field. I like went to the pitcher's mound and like grabbed a handful of dirt and put it in a bag and took it home. <laughs> not joking, really did that. But here is the tyranny of all of that. Those games ended, and they ended really quickly. 
And then the next game we were playing was back on our high school field that was full of bumps and was uneven and had some goat heads on it. And so I realized at that moment, okay, I have to get to that level where I can play there forever because that's where I want to stay. And so anyways, I scrapped and clawed and was able to actually play in college a little bit. And I wasn't very good in college, but I just wanted to play so bad that I would work really hard to get myself to that level. And then something happened in college, that kind of, that vision started to fade because I actually heard, received, and saw the gospel lived out. And so through um, hearing about what Christianity was actually about, what it actually meant to know God, and to have him care about me in such a way that he would have a personal relationship with me, that became kind of a more animating principle. And so I didn't care about baseball as much. It was like, this is kind of work now, and so I quit. And we had um, the chance to talk to a major league baseball player um, not too long ago, and like in the Q&A, it was just very apparent to me that even if you get to that level where you're playing on those fields and it's like that level of perfection, he was aware that it was coming to an end. He was like, yeah, my knee is going and I don't know how much longer I'm gonna be able to do this. His body was decaying. There was still kind of that principle of decay that was eating away at even the best kind of ideal that baseball held out there. And so, that was just more confirmation to me that the human heart, what we want, is we want something that is permanently perfect. We don't just want something that's perfect for a little bit. That can get us going, but we want something that's permanently perfect. And so we have these hopes and we attach our hopes to these things that we think, if we get to that place, then I've arrived, then I can rest, then I can be happy. And we do it with a lot of things. We do it with our family. We do it with our kids. It's like, if I just get the kids to this stage, then I'll be happy. If I just get them raised and they are loving the Lord, then I'll be happy. We do it with our jobs. If I just get to this station, if I just get to this level of my career, then I'll be satisfied. And it's all deception because none of that actually lasts. It all crumbles, it all fades away. And the longer that we go through life, the longer we realize this. I mean, moving to the city, talking to people who have come to the city, they have, a lot of them have this hope. They have this hope of a promising job and an exciting job, a job that they really want to do, that they've worked and um, have educated themselves for and they move here and it's a really exciting, cool job. And they're like pumped for about six months and then they're destroyed because they realize that there's a system that's kind of grinding them up and churning them out and they don't actually, nobody really cares about them. And so people are lonely, they're anxious, they're frustrated because what they had attached their hope to had faded away. And so in Revelation 21, we finally get to this beautiful picture of something that is permanently perfect, something that does not fade, and it's something that 
we can actually animate our lives around for eternity, and it is satisfying. And let's just jump into that. Turn to Revelation 21 with me, and we're going to see this picture of what this looks like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the the gates 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agat, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates and the twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for this morning and for this day and for this picture that we get. It's a picture that is the fulfillment of the entire Bible. It's a picture of our fulfillment as your people. And Lord, your care, your presence is all over this picture. You've poured out your very self into creating it, preserving it, and waiting for the right time to bring it to completion. And so, Lord, I ask that um, as we gaze at this picture this morning, that it would capture our imaginations, that it would open our hearts to you, and that we would live for it in our everyday life. God, we ask that your spirit would be here this morning, that it would help us to hold to the hope of this picture. And Lord, we ask that we would experience it even now in small ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation 21 is all about the newly created cosmos being brought from heaven from the throne room, and being brought to earth. And so God's perfect will for all of creation is brought to all of creation. And there is no corner of this cosmos that isn't perfectly filled by God, that's not perfectly made by God, and it's made for us. All of this is a picture of God's love for us poured out. And as we see it, and as we see all of the wonderful things in it, we actually learn about who God is. And so that's kind of the flow of this, of this um, chapter. And there's a couple of descriptions that help us understand what this actually is. And again, remember, this is Revelation, so he's speaking symbolically. He's speaking in word pictures that don't have a concrete fulfillment. So he's using something concrete like a city and all of these descriptions of it to reveal something that is so big and abstract that if you were to try and describe it, you couldn't because it's too big. So he's using that concrete picture of a city in order to kind of describe what the new cosmos will be like. And the two images that he gives us are a bride and a temple city. And so these two images are going to kind of reveal a little bit about the nature of the work that God is doing in all of Scripture and what it looks like for him to love creation like this and for him to love his people in this way. So we're going to just look really quick at the bride, and then we're going to look at the temple city, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about what we're supposed to do with that. 
Like, that's great, but why does it matter? Why is this in here? Why is a description of the future in Scripture coming here at the end? So the setting for all of this is going back to chapter 20, which was last week. We kind of were left with um, the great white throne and the judgment scene. And in the judgment scene, you see all of the mountains and the um, oceans, everything kind of receding and retreating. So God's glory comes down to the earth, and the earth kind of runs away from it. And it does that because there's a decay that's occurring in the earth. There's a curse of death that is woven into everything in the earth. And that decay, that death, comes to a final end as God's glory is revealed. And so it retreats, it recedes. And in chapter 21, this is described very quickly as the first earth and the first heaven passing away. And so they recede, and the sea was no more. So again, does that mean there's not going to be an ocean in the new creation? No. There might not be, but that's not what this is talking about. The sea is understood to be kind of like the place of evil, the place of chaos, the place of um, threat in the Old Testament. So in the Hebrew mindset, the sea was always something that was a threat and that would create anxiety. And so by saying that the sea was no more in the new heavens and the new earth, is saying that even the threat of evil is not there. There's not even the potential for something to come out of the sea or come from the sea and to corrupt this new creation. So the setting that is set in this first verse is that all of the work that God has done in judging the earth was purposeful. It's like he went out to the baseball field and gathered up all the goat heads and got rid of them. So all of those cycles of judgment were for the sole purpose of getting rid of evil and preparing a place for this new heaven and this new earth. That's the setting. And then John goes to this description, and it's, I think it's really interesting how he does it, He sees a holy city, right? So that's the first part of verse two. But the holy city is prepared as a bride. So he's mixing metaphors here. So he sees a city, but it's a bride. And then you see a description of this bride and what it means for there there to be a bride for the lamb. We kind of get this. Marriage is supposed to, ideally, be a wonderful relationship of intimacy and love that you enjoy. A place where you are known by someone and you know them. Where you share in pleasure, you share experiences, you share in meaningful work. And all of those human marriages, they're imperfect. Some of them are bad. Some of them are not that. But they are all supposed to point to this one relationship. They're supposed to whisper 
something about our relationship to God. So even the best human relationship, the best human marriage, as close to perfection as it can possibly be, is just a one note in this much grander symphony of God's love for his people and his people's love for him. By describing this new city, this new earth, as a bride, John is pointing us to the love that God has for us. He's pointing us to the intimacy that we have with him. This is a longing, frankly, it's so strong, so powerful, that I think one of the ways we deal with it is we just kind of mute it. We so desperately want to know God that we can't even think about it for very long because we get frustrated. We're confused about who God is. God's invisible. He's so much bigger than us. And yet that desire is still there. We have that deep longing to know God, to be satisfied in God, in God alone. And so as we mute that, we kind of look to other things that are a little bit easier, we, things that are a little more immediate, maybe things that require a little less work, things that are easy. And this is where we start to kind of get pulled in. Remember, there was another woman, so we have a bride, but there was another woman that we talked about not too long ago, and that was the prostitute, Babylon. And so one of the ways that the human heart responds to this longing to be loved by God, but the reality of that barrier between God is to start trying to fulfill that longing in other things. So we get pulled in, we get seduced by these you know, symbolic Babylon. We get seduced by our jobs. We get seduced by our families. We get seduced by enjoyment, entertainment. And sometimes we just start to realize, like, this isn't working, so we start to numb. We start to escape. We start to kind of, like, turn off that part of our hearts that longs for something deeper, that longs for something more. All of us can relate to this. We're tired, we're tired of looking at the news and seeing disappointment. We're tired of going to work and living in dread of the next email that's coming or the next piece of criticism that's going to be leveled on you. We're tired of laboring for children only to see it continually bounce. We're tired of trying to live up to expectations that our parents have for us and feeling like failures, feeling like disappointments. And so we just kind of go through life numb. But this hope is presented to us as actually something that we don't have to do. It's given to us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
God is the one doing the action. We just receive. We just get to partake in his love. We don't have to earn it. That is done. That is done. It's made explicit in verse 6 when God starts speaking to John and he kind of makes this a strong point. He says, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. There will be an end to our disappointment. There will be an end to our search for fulfillment. There will be an end to pain. There will be an end to disappointment. And it comes at the words of God. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. He gives to the thirsty, he gives drink from the spring of water without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So that word conquering is going all the way back to chapters two and three. We covered this a long time ago. But that encouragement, conquer, overcome, was given to all of the churches, right? So there was these seven churches in Asia that John is writing these letters to. Remember those churches? They were pretty raggedy. They were a rough group. Open any of Paul's letters to any of those churches, Corinthians. He's like, you are the church of God. And then he proceeds in basically the whole letter to kind of just open up all their dysfunction. So this word conquering, overcoming, has been given to the churches, but it's been given to churches in shambles. The picture that we get in Revelation 21 is the church perfected. God has finished his work in and through and with the church. It's perfected. This is something that God has done to the church. It's not something that we do. It's not something we conjure up by our own strength or willpower. It's something that God does through the Spirit, working through the Word. And it's all done for the Son, prepared as a bride for the Lamb. So this image of being the bride of Christ it should give us hopes that one day our deepest longings for intimacy, our deepest longings to be known, our deepest longings for enjoyment, our deepest longings for companionship, for partnership, will be fully fulfilled permanently. And there's not going to be anything that threatens it. Nothing will be able to steal that no one's going to die. No one's going to betray. No one's going to disappoint. We are the bride of Christ. And this is the consummation of that relationship. He continues to kind of develop this in verse 9. He says, he receives this from one of the seven angels, and the seven, the seven, one of the seven angels says, come, I will show you the bride. So now we see the bride, right? First we saw the city, but then the bride. Now we see the bride, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me 
the holy city. Okay, that makes sense. He showed us the city by showing us the bride. Now he's going to show us the bride by showing us the city. This is just repeating the same thing. So now we're going to get a different description of the exact same thing to give us a kind of new angle on it, to give us a little more nuance and a different perspective. So the temple city that is described here comes again, comes down from heaven, and it has the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And so in this new city, we get a really elaborate description of it. That's the majority of this chapter is kind of the description of this physical city temple thing, square. It's really weird. If you actually look at it, the description of it is like these walls or the the boundaries are about 1,380 miles. So it's these like, if you try and like picture it, it's really hard to picture. But it's a wall that is like 607 feet thick, maybe. And then it's like, how many miles high? 1,380 miles high. And it's a cube. So to me, that's kind of a clue that this isn't literal. <laughs> like This isn't actually going to be what it is. But this is describing a massive version of the Holy of Holies. Because the Holy of Holies was this perfect cube within the temple. And it was the physical proximity, the local presence of God with his people was in the Holy of Holies, and it had all of these barriers. And so John is saying, here's the temple, here's the temple city that is being brought down from God to earth, and instead of there being barriers to it, it's encapsulating everything. So there is no inch of the cosmos that isn't part of the holy of holies. God is dwelling physically, locally with the entire universe. And it's perfect. It's pure. Nothing sinful, nothing impure, nothing unclean can enter that holy of holies. And so now, that's everything. It also has these descriptions of the gemstones. You guys were probably curious about that. The gemstones and the picture that it's creating is that these stones are kind of, you know, they're either decorated or these walls are made entirely of these types of gemstones. But what it is, is, is it's literally just kind of like a duplication of the breastplate that the high priest would wear. It's all the same stones or the equivalent of those stones. And so in the Old Testament temple system, the high priest would wear those, and each one of those 12 stones represented one of the tribes. And so symbolically, that was showing that everything that the high priest was doing, he was doing as a representative for all of Israel. So there was not a single person, not a single tribe that was being left out of the intermediary work of the high priest. So the high priest was offering sacrifices, praise, thanksgiving on behalf of every single Israelite. And so all of these descriptions, the twelves, there's the foundations, the twelve gates, these are all ways of saying 
all of God's people are there, and they're fully represented. There's not a single one of God's people that is not here. It's complete. It's full. They're all there. And the work of the priest was to essentially communicate God to the people. And so there's a lot of work that he had to do in order to make that happen because he's representing the people. He is the priest on behalf of a sinful nation, a nation that's described like an unfaithful wife. And so he has to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And as he does that, it is kind of like holding together that relationship that God has with Israel. But just read the Old Testament. That was tenuous at best. And even the high priest started to take advantage of that system and start to kind of like have God's blessing, but didn't really care about God's presence. And so this picture is all of that work is done. The people are all enjoying that. And what they're looking to is the blessing of God, which is his presence. Just being in the presence of God is what all of this is building towards. How's that for abstract? Anybody know what that's actually like? <laughs> it's really hard to fathom. We might have like moments of that in our Christian life where we feel God's presence right there powerfully. This chapter is telling us that we are going to be every minute in eternity in the presence of God. It's going to be very interesting. It's all, that's about all I know. It's going to be very interesting because God is so complex. He's so magnificent. It's going to just con completely capture our imagination. So you, we have this description of the bride and the temple, and it's communicating the love of God. God's plan and purpose. It's the fulfillment of all of Scripture. I mean, this, this chapter is so rich, you could literally interpret the entire Bible from it. You could go back and look at Genesis and see Eden. You can look at um, Abraham and see the promise of the kingdom and to bless the nations. You can go into Exodus and see God claiming Israel as a son and liberating Israel, bringing Israel out and trying to lead Israel into the land. You can see the temple at work, the tabernacle at work. But in all of scripture, it's always imperfect. It's always fading. It's always temporary. There's always a threat. Even in our lives, we know this. There's always a threat. And one of the threats is that our imaginations start to get captured by things other than this vision, other than this picture. I was thinking about this for myself, and I'm sure for you guys too. Like, if I think about my day, a lot of times a meme is going to animate me more than the Word of God. Like, I'll scroll through, and I will get, you know, enjoyment out of that for a minute. And I'll share that with my friends. But not the word of God. We spend more time 
looking through the news because it's either confirming that our hopes are not being satisfied or we're looking for evidence that the other people, the enemies, are the ones to blame for the state of things. And so we get really, we get really animated about all these different issues that are going on. And we come to God's word and it just kind of like bounces off of us. When that happens, we are settling. We are settling for so much less. We're settling for something that is cheap and easy. Something that is just a distraction. And we're attaching our hopes to it. And here's what we learned about Babylon and the beast and the plan of Satan, who's always working against this picture, is that they are using those things, those little, um, those little moments to capture your imagination and just start to kind of attach your affections, your hopes to other things. It doesn't stop there, though, because there's also the beast. And so once you're weak, once you are kind of torn in terms of your allegiances between God and these other things that capture your imagination, the beast puts its pressure on you. So when I was reading this, obviously I was thinking of Christians in Afghanistan who are teaching us right now. Because they're being hunted. They're being hunted. Their phones are being taken, and if there's a Bible on their phone, they're being killed. All of that pressure is put on them. And one of the, one of the reports of what a pastor said in that, in the midst of that, in the midst of having his congregants being executed for their faith, is that this is why we don't put our trust in politics or in the things of this world, but we trust Jesus. Because every, they've lost everything else. And that doesn't happen, that kind of love doesn't happen just happenstance, right? It happens because they are captivated by the reality that God is pouring out his love for them in this way. And you see all through scripture, you see this kind of beautiful picture of God's people faithfully enduring. It's imperfect, yes, but they faithfully endure. They're enduring persecution. In John's time, his people, the people he's writing this letter to, are enduring persecution by the Roman Empire. And this he gives, God gives to John as a present for those people to say, endure. It's temporary. I am using it as a way of building the city for you. I am using it as a way to prepare you to be my bride. I am using this temporary affliction, this temporary suffering for perfect and final consummation. And so we as God's people need to animate our lives with the love of Christ in this way because that's what he did. That's what Jesus did. How do we do this? We get a really beautiful description of it, of what it looks like in Hebrews 12. After talking about all of these 
um, believers, all of the people who came before, the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' joy was your life, your faithful witness, your overcoming. That is what motivated him to endure the cross. Our joy is that Jesus loves us in that way, that he so loves us that he presents this renewed, newly made cosmos for us to be with him, to be his people forever. And so, Orient your life around that picture and fight for it. There's so much depth there, you are going to have to work. You're going to have to remind yourself of all of the richness that's there. But fight for it. It is worth it. It is worth it. And that's what we're going to receive when the Lord returns. And so in chapter 22, you'll see the only thing left for the people to do for the church to do is say, come, Lord Jesus. So let's get ready to have our hearts cry out in that way. Come, Lord Jesus. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, that you provide us with this beautiful image. And God, I just ask that you would help us to focus on it, to set our gaze on it, to resist the distractions of this earth, the distractions um, that seem important even, but that are looking for our fulfillment, our satisfaction in anything other than you being our God and we being your people. Lord, I thank you that we can gather this morning and remind ourselves of this, that we can experience being your people and the blessings of that And God, I ask that we would also remember that this is for all the nations, that this is held out to all of the nations. And so, Lord, we long to have all of your people with us. God, we thank you again. We ask that you would help us um, receive this, help us live this out, and help us wait for you to bring this new cosmos down to earth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.